Turn with me to Isaiah chapter 61. Isaiah 61. If you're not super familiar with your Bible, Isaiah is just about in the middle and slightly to the right. And so that's a good place for us to start. Isaiah chapter 61, and I will be reading all 11 verses. Isaiah 61. The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me, because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and the opening of the prison to those who are bound, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn, to grant to those who mourn in Zion, to give them a beautiful headdress instead of ashes, the oil of gladness instead of mourning, the garment of praise instead of a faint spirit, that they may be called oaks of righteousness, the planting of the Lord, that he may be glorified. They shall build up the ancient ruins, they shall raise up the former devastations. They shall repair the ruined cities, the devastations of many generations. Strangers shall stand and tend your flocks, and foreigners shall be your plowmen and vine dressers. But you shall be called the priests of the Lord. They shall speak of you as the ministers of our God. You shall eat the wealth of the nations, and in their glory you shall boast. Instead of your shame, there shall be a double portion. Instead of dishonor, they shall rejoice in their lot. Therefore, in their land, they shall possess a double portion. They shall have everlasting joy. For I, the Lord, love justice. I hate robbery and wrong. I will faithfully give them their recompense, and I will make an everlasting covenant with them. Their offspring shall be known among the nations and their descendants in the midst of the peoples. All who see them shall acknowledge them that they are an offspring of the Lord. The Lord has blessed. I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. My soul shall exult in my God. For he has clothed me with the garments of salvation. He has covered me with the robe of righteousness. As a bridegroom decks himself like a priest with a beautiful headdress. And as a bride adorns herself with her jewels. For as the earth brings forth its sprouts. And as a garden causes what is sown in it to sprout up. So the Lord God will cause righteousness and praise to sprout up before all the nations. What a wonderful chapter for us, and we're going to get to that in just a few minutes. One of the unfortunate hallmarks of American Christianity is that so often our engagement with God is defined in terms of what God does for me. Now, in terms of salvation, God saves me, and this is true. In terms of prayer, God answers prayer in a way which benefits me. This is also true. In terms of the help of the Holy Spirit, He's my helper, He's my empowerment, He's my guide, which aids me. Also true. And in terms of my interaction with the Word of God, this profits me. Again, it's all true. But like with any truth over a couple of generations, a degradation takes place in which instead of these truths about God's relationship to me standing in the context of a bigger plan of God, now God becomes defined, he becomes classified as essentially existing for my sake. And that is classic American Christianity. And now the church as often as not preaches sermons aimed primarily at how God can serve me. And we sing songs even with a theology of me at the center of 
with a few mentions of Jesus. The top Christian song of 2017 by Hillsong Worship starts off pretty good. Starts off with some fabulous statements about the Lord Jesus. But then right in the middle, the center of the song, the crux of their whole message is that your salvation is because Jesus didn't want to be in heaven if you aren't there. That's total heresy. God doesn't need you. Jesus doesn't need you. It's his grace that he allows us to be with him. Well, Reformed theology helps us stay grounded in the bigger picture. The Westminster Shorter Catechism famously states that man's chief end is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. And that rightly puts God first and man second. Well, I think it's safe to say also that one of the trademarks of a maturing believer in the Lord Jesus Christ is a recognition that I'm not the center of God's overarching plan. That God's glory is the center of his overarching plan. His own fame and the way he's chosen to receive glory is to create the heavens and the earth and to set up a kingdom filled with subjects who will freely worship and adore him for all eternity. That's about him. And part of this maturing process for those believers who who are getting to that point, part of the admiration, the adoration of God is that we acknowledge in awe and in appreciation and in amazement that God has an agenda, has always had an agenda, and all of human history, including your life, falls in line with that agenda and that agenda alone. And the culmination of this agenda, the climactic moment happens when the Son of God, King Jesus, whom Revelation calls the King of kings and Lord of lords, when he is running the earth and ruling in glory and in might and in majesty, that's the pinnacle of God's plan. That's what he's been aiming for for all of time. And I would assert that when Jesus commanded that we pray, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven, that a good focus in that prayer is your will be done on earth. Because that's what we're ultimately aiming for. Yes, we talk about going to heaven. Never forget that the ultimate culmination of heaven is that it comes back to earth. First to the earth as it is now in the millennial kingdom and ultimately to a new heaven and a new earth. But when we pray your will be done on earth, this is not just a prayer regarding God's will for my job situation or regarding my family or this or that. It's a, it's a prayer for Christ to be exalted and for his kingdom to come. The prayer, your will be done on earth, has nothing to do with you as an individual, quite frankly. It's all about the Lord Jesus. And so tonight, in our mini-series here, in our effort to encourage you to pray more kingdom-oriented prayers, I want to encourage you to pray for the king's agenda. To pray for the king's agenda, that the Lord Jesus Christ has a plan. He has a strategy. And our prayer for your will be done on earth is essentially carry out your kingly program. Carry out your agenda. You might ask, what is the king's agenda? Well, Isaiah answers this question in Isaiah 61, and we will get to that answer. But I think it's helpful for us to understand what gets us to this point in prophetic history, prophetic redemptive history, because Isaiah 61 is almost, with the the exception of one and one-third verses, it's exclusively future. These are things that haven't happened yet. It is prophecy. So we need to understand the past. And the key to understanding Isaiah 61 is to go all the way back to Abraham, the father of Israel. In fact, to go all the way back before him. 
And so I want to invest a little time here and take some time together to take a short tour of the book of Genesis. And I think that's important for us to set up Isaiah 61. So turn with me all the way back to Genesis chapter 1. Everybody knows where the book of Genesis is. So that's the one I have confidence that you can find. Genesis and the first chapter usually is right there at the beginning. At creation... God blessed Adam and Eve, the progenitors of mankind. And he said in Genesis 1, look with me at verse 28, 27 rather. So God created man in his own image, in the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And God said, Behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of all the earth and every tree with seed in its fruit. You shall have them for food. And to every beast of the earth and to every bird of the heavens and to everything that creeps on the earth, everything that has the breath of life, I have given every green plant for food. And it was so. Verse 31, And God saw everything that he had made, including his plan for mankind. And behold, it was very good. And there was evening and there was morning the sixth day. Now I want you to notice what God wanted to do for and with mankind in order to glorify himself. Here's what he wanted to do. From Eden, the Garden of Eden is just a garden in a nation called Eden. From Eden, a chosen nation, God would give a blessing, verse 28, offspring and descendants verse 28 land he says fill the earth i give you land and a name for themselves that he would give them dominion over all things man's exercise of authority was with god and it was for god so from a chosen nation he would give blessing offspring and descendants land and a name but instead of enjoying god's favor and ruling the earth on his behalf adam and eve rebelled And they threw all of mankind into sin, into a curse. Genesis 3, look with me at verse 17. And to Adam he said, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you. And you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground. For out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. The Apostle Paul explains this in the book of Romans when he says that the wages of sin is what? Death. And this is where it began. So now, from our perspective, we can look back on history with with somewhat of a horror that our own eternal future now has been compromised. The day that you were conceived in your mother's womb, you carried the curse of sin in your own spiritual DNA. It was right there with you. You were condemned. You were unable to stand before the holiness of God. And so even from our standpoint, we bite our nails in anxiety looking at Genesis 3. What is God going to do? He has to intervene. Something has to be done to save us from sin. And just like a final nail in our coffin right before the flood God saw that the earth was corrupt and filled with sin. We see in Genesis 6, verse 5, follow along with me. Genesis 6, 5, The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. Why was this? Well, there was a major factor 
And that was demonic spirits going outside their bounds and in some way mixing with humanity. These demonic spirits in verse 4 are called the sons of God. Verse 4, the Nephilim or giants were on the earth in those days and also afterward when the sons of God, these demonic spirits, came into the daughters of man and they bore children to them. These were the mighty men of old, the men of renown. Now that phrase is the key to the whole thing. The men of renown. In Hebrew, it literally is men who possess a name. That they have gone out to make a name for themselves. They're the mighty, violent men who establish a name for themselves because of sin, not because of their partnership with God. After the flood, mankind once again rebels against God. God had directed mankind to populate and spread out over the earth. Genesis 9 verse 1 says that. Instead, what did they do? Look with me at Genesis 11. God had told them, be fruitful, multiply, spread out, fan out over the whole earth. Dominate it, rule it. Genesis 11 verse 4. Then they, the people of earth, said, Come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens, and let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. Their goal, make a name for themselves outside the blessing of God, just like the goal of the mighty men of old, to be outside of God. So you know the story here. God confused their languages, and thus he caused the division of nations. But God's plan to, from a chosen nation, give mankind blessing, offspring and descendants, land, and a name for themselves, dominion through his grace, not through their own efforts, that plan is still in force. That was still going. But it was very apparent now that on their own, mankind would not and could not receive these gifts from God. And so that brings us to Genesis 12. When God continues his kingdom program originally begun in the Garden of Eden for mankind and for the earth. Genesis 12, beginning in verse 1. Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make of you a great nation and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. And so this is God continuing his kingdom program. And he, he promises Abraham three things. Promises him first, a great nation. Abraham had renounced his own national identity. He was essentially a man without a nation in favor of becoming a distinct nation, distinct from those listed, by the way, in Genesis 10. We have this long list of nations. And God tells Abraham, we're going to make a different one for you. What does it mean that it was a great nation? Well, it would have a large population. Look ahead to Genesis 13, verse 16. I will make your offspring as the dust of the earth, so that if one can count the dust of the earth, 14, then the Lord said to Abram after Lot had separated from him, lift up your eyes and look from the place where you are, northward and southward and eastward and westward, for all the land that you see I will give to you and to your offspring forever. And according to Deuteronomy 4, 7 and 8, you don't have to turn there, it would be a nation characterized by wisdom. It says, For what great nation is there that has a God so near to it as the Lord our God is to us whenever we call upon him? And what great nation is there that has statutes and rules so righteous as all this law that I set before you today? 
And so in Genesis 12, God promised Abraham, first, a great nation. Second, he promised him personal blessing. Chapter 12, verse 2, I will make of you a great nation and I will bless you and make your name great. He would receive a great name. And the irony here is is that what men had sought after by human effort, a name for themselves before the flood and at the Tower of Babel, the Lord will just give that to Abraham. It's his gift. Now, the Old Testament generally reserves the idea of a great name for God. But Abraham seems to have been given a gracious, exalted status and authority under and for the sake of God. And what's the result of these these promises? Chapter 12, verse 2. Great nation, personal blessing, and a great name. The result is, at the very end, so that you will be a blessing. But to whom? Those who are favorably disposed toward Abraham. I will bless those who bless you. And he says he'll be a blessing to all, verse 3, the families of the earth. This is a different Hebrew word that's usually used for nations. This is not speaking just of nations. It's speaking of clans, groups within nations. That every family group on earth will at least have representatives who are blessed on account of Abraham. And, and, he, and he sneaks in there in the middle of verse 3, him who dishonors you, I will curse. That is part of the greatness given to Abraham, being a blessing. And we'll go back to that in a moment. Chapter 12, verse 7, after Abraham finally came to the land of Canaan, God made a further promise to him to give this land to his seed, to his descendants. Then the Lord appeared to Abram and said, to your offspring, I will give this land. But we get more information in Genesis 15. Turn with me over to Genesis 15, verse 7. And he said to him, God speaking to Abram, I am the Lord who brought you out from Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to possess. And in the next 20 verses or so, the next 14 verses or so rather, uh, Genesis 15, 7 through 21, the emphasis is on the promise of land given to offspring, Abraham's offspring, his seed. And God performs a ceremony with Abraham to show that this is a one-sided covenant, that God assumes 100% responsibility for carrying this covenant out. He also tells Abraham that very shortly his descendants will become captives for 400 years, but God will rescue them and the coming chosen nation would be oppressed, but they would then be delivered. Once again, God meets with Abraham to drive this covenant home in Genesis 17. In Genesis 17, Abraham is now 99 years old and God gives five speeches to Abraham. Two of them, numbers one and three, focus on God's expectations of Abraham. That even though this is an unconditional covenant, nevertheless, Abraham has responsibilities. And three of the speeches, numbers two, four, and five, the focus is on God's promise to bless him, a reiteration of this covenant. Speech number one happens in verses one and two. I am God Almighty, walk before me and be blameless that I may make my covenant between me and you and may multiply you greatly. That's God's expectations, be blameless. Speech number two, now we have promises between verses three through three and eight. I won't read the whole text to you, but the promises are, again, he'll be the father of a multitude of nations. He'll be exceedingly fruitful. This is an everlasting covenant and the land of Canaan is given to his people. 
Then you have speech number three in verses nine through 14. Again, this is God's expectations now. And this is when God gives the command of circumcision, the sign of God's covenant with Abraham, showing that, that this chosen nation, this people are different. They're set apart. They're unique. They're not like anybody else. They're holy. Speech number four, verses 15 and 16. We go back to promises again. His wife, Sarah, her name has changed. And now she'll have a son from whom nations and kings will come. In the last speech in verses 19 through 21 are more promises. Again, the same promise of a son and what his name is to be. Verse 19, God said, no, but Sarah, your wife shall bear you a son and you shall call his name Isaac. And I would point out that the demands that God makes of Abraham are encircled and cradled by the promises of God. But God isn't finished. Shortly after this, God appears to Abraham now in person. Genesis 18. In Genesis 18, this, we find the story of the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah. The beginning of that story, rather. God appears with two angels to Abraham to announce the coming birth of Abraham's son and to announce the coming destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah, that this is coming. Genesis 18, verse 17. The Lord said, and this is God in the flesh speaking, Shall I hide from Abraham what I am about to do, seeing that Abraham shall surely become a great and mighty nation, and all the nations of the earth shall be blessed in him? And so God here affirms the promises of a great nation and all the nations of the earth being blessed in him. But Abraham's descendants have an obligation. Verse 19. For I have chosen him that he may command his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing righteousness and justice so that the Lord may bring to Abraham what he has promised him. Now, of course, if you've read your Old Testament even half a time, you see a problem with this. If mankind is to experience the blessing of God, but is now under the curse of sin and the blessing of mankind, which is to come through Abraham's descendants, is contingent on his descendants, quote, keeping the way of the Lord by doing righteousness and justice, then we're all doomed. Because in the generations to come, Israel would fail time and time and time again. The Old Testament is essentially the story of the formation of Israel and her failure. That's the story. But we have the benefit of all the written revelation of God in Scripture, and we know that even though the offspring of Abraham would fail, one of them would succeed. That Jesus Christ, the Son of God, the Son of Abraham, through Isaac, Jacob, Judah, David, and Mary, having lived a perfect life, would represent all who would stand behind him. And he would pay the sin penalty handed down from Adam and Eve that the wages of sin is death. Well, we get one final recorded communication from God to Abraham, and this is in Genesis chapter 22. God has tested Abraham's willingness to obey the Lord at all costs with his near sacrifice of his son Isaac. And we see a reaffirmation here of the covenant in Genesis 22, verse 15. And the angel of the Lord, this is a, this is a pre-incarnate Jesus Christ, called to Abraham a second time from heaven and said, by myself I have sworn, declares the Lord, because you have done this and have not withheld your son, your only son, I will surely bless you and I will surely multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and as the sand that is on the seashore and your offspring shall possess the gate of his enemies and in your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed because you have obeyed my voice. 
Abraham's seed, plural, will be multiplied. Abraham's seed, verse 17 and 18, singular, will possess the gates of his enemies. Ironically, the person speaking here, the angel of the Lord calling to Abraham from heaven, is the singular seed who will possess the gates of Abraham's enemies. Now you have an emphasis on a royal lineage, a kingly line that will rule and nations will be blessed in Abraham through this kingly line. Now, as redemptive history begins to speed up in Exodus through Deuteronomy, we start to see a preliminary outworking of God's promises to Abraham, a great nation being formed. Look with me at Genesis chapter 46. Now we skip ahead a few chapters. Genesis 46 And God is speaking to Abraham's grandson, Jacob. He's at the end of his life, near the end of his life. Chapter 46, verse 2, And God spoke to Israel, and that's what he changed Jacob's name to, And God spoke to Israel in visions of the night and said, Jacob, Jacob. And he said, Here I am. Then he said, I am God, the God of your father. Do not be afraid to go down to Egypt. For there I will make you into what? A great nation. So after Jacob's family entered Egypt during the famine, eventually a new Pharaoh arose who didn't know Jacob's family. Look with me now a couple of pages away at Exodus chapter 1. Exodus chapter 1, verse 8. Now there arose a new king over Egypt who did not know Joseph. This was Jacob's son. And he said to his people, Behold, the people of Israel are too many and too mighty for us. As a matter of fact, Israel became so numerous that the Pentateuch records that when they finally left Egypt, there were over 600,000 men of fighting age. That is a modern-day size army. In the book of Numbers, chapter 23, verse 10, Balaam says this, Who can count, and I love this phrase, the dust of Jacob or number the fourth part of Israel? It is estimated that when Israel left, when Israel left Egypt at that point, they were literally the largest standing army on earth at that time. So it's appropriate to be called the dust of Jacob. In Exodus, we see the fulfillment of God's promise to deliver Israel from bondage when God rescues them from Egypt. And we see a focus on land. That Israel was brought out of Egypt specifically to occupy the land promised to Abraham. And some would say, well, the land promises are are symbolic. They're metaphorical. They can't be. That all of the references to land, they mean dirt. They mean spaces that you put things on. It's land. Look at Exodus chapter 3, verse 8. Very classic verse for us. And I have come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of that land to a good and broad land, a land flowing with milk and honey, to the place of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. Look at Exodus chapter 6. Just to nail this down, that this is about land. Exodus 6, verse 4. I also established my covenant with them to give them the land of Canaan, the land in which they lived as sojourners. Verse 8 of the same chapter, I will bring you into the land that I swore to give to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. I will give it to you for a possession. I am the Lord. 
But God speaks to Moses and tells him that Israel will forfeit the land because of their disobedience to the covenant made in Exodus, and they'll be scattered among the nations. Deuteronomy 31, God commands Moses to teach Israel a song as a witness against them, a song that says that Israel will follow after other gods and break covenant with Yahweh and despise God. This is like having a little kid who's about to disobey you, and you say, hang on just a minute, I'm going to teach you a song. Here's the song. You're about to disobey, and you're going to get spanked. Let's do that again. And then they disobey, and you say, remember the song? This is what God does. Earlier in Leviticus 26, in fact, turn with me to Leviticus chapter 26. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus. God predicts that Israel will break covenant with God and will scatter them among the nations. Leviticus 26, verse 33. Verse 33 says, And I will scatter you among the nations, and I will unsheath the sword after you, and your land shall be a desolation, and your city shall be a waste. But you remember who is 100% responsible for the Abrahamic covenant? God is. And so he says in verse 44 of the same chapter, Yet for all that, When they are in the land of their enemies, I will not spurn them. Neither will I abhor them so as to destroy them utterly and break my covenant with them. For I am the Lord their God. But I will for their sake remember the covenant with their forefathers whom I brought out of the land of Egypt in the sight of the nations that I might be their God. I am the Lord. So how do we put all this together? Well, we could categorize God's promises to Abraham into three main groups. Here's the first group. We could categorize the first group and call it a great nation. A great nation. And some of the subcategories would include they get a physical land forever. Can't have a nation without land. They would have numerous offspring. The seed of Abraham would be innumerable. Israel's continued existence, even in times of serious disobedience, will be sustained, will be buoyed, will be carried on by the Abrahamic covenant. Just as an example, when Israel immediately disobeyed God at Sinai, worshiping the golden calf, Moses interceded for them on the basis of the Abrahamic covenant. He said in Exodus 32, verse 13, Remember Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, your servants, to whom you swore by your own self, and said to them, I will multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven, and all this land that I have promised will give to your offspring, and they shall inherit it forever. And then the great nation also includes being delivered from bondage. You can't be a great nation if you're in bondage to another one. The second group we could maybe call worldwide blessing. Worldwide blessing. And under this group, we would have the individual promises of a blessing to all nations. And this is God's purpose for the existence of Israel as a nation. This is their constitution. Exodus 19, verse 6. You shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. What do priests do? They introduce people to God. And so Israel was to show off God to the nations and they were to be the channel through which anyone in all the peoples of the world could come to know the true and living God. We see under worldwide blessing, not only blessing of all the nations, we see the ultimate fulfillment of worldwide blessing comes in the singular seed, the singular offspring, the one person of Abraham. And that is the Lord Jesus Christ. 
Galatians 3, verse 16 says, Now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say, and to offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one and to your offspring, who is Christ. That Abraham's blessing to the nations comes through the Savior who offers forgiveness of sin to all peoples of the earth. So you have under the worldwide blessing, the blessing of all nations, the ultimate fulfillment in the singular seed of Abraham. The offspring of Abraham also now would include anyone who would come to God by faith, just like Abraham did. Galatians 3.29 says that all who have received Christ by faith, just as Abraham was saved by faith, is recorded in Genesis 15, verse 6. All who come to Christ by faith, they are Abraham's sons and daughters. We're his offspring. That includes Gentiles, but that doesn't cancel out the literal, physical dimension uh, that's clearly part of the promises to Israel. So you have a great nation, you have worldwide blessing, and then you have the third group we might call personal blessing. The personal blessing to Abraham himself. He's given a great name. He's given great wealth. Genesis 13 verse 2 says, Now Abram was rich in livestock, in silver, and in gold. He's given great protection. Genesis 14 records victory in battle. And, and, being, and being able to protect his own family and rescue them. In fact, Genesis 24, verse 1, gives a summary of the personal blessing of Abraham. Now, Abraham was old, well advanced in years, and the Lord had blessed Abraham in all things, in everything. So that's the background, because now we have a problem. When we get to Isaiah 61, and you can go ahead and turn back there, Israel is in exile. God's program is hanging in the balance. And it looks as if all of these wonderful promises given to Abraham, they're they're all done. There's no hope of those ever coming true. In a very real sense, all hope is lost. There is no nation of Israel. Now they're just involuntary refugees in a foreign nation. And Isaiah writes to give these exiles hope that God has not forgotten forgotten Israel. And he writes essentially to tell them a wonderful story about the future. That Israel's Messiah, Israel's Savior and future King, will come and will restore her fortunes. And Isaiah records the King himself giving his agenda. We could easily divide this agenda into two parts, very similar to an American presidential agenda. We would call it the domestic agenda and the international agenda. Those are his two parts here. So first, we see the domestic agenda of King Jesus. The domestic agenda of Jesus Christ began at his first coming 2,000 years ago. Verse 1, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me. This is Christ speaking. Because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor, he has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and the opening of the prison to those who are bound. Christ proclaims that the Spirit of God has empowered him. And what do we immediately think of? We think of the baptism of Jesus in which the Spirit of God descended on God as a man, Jesus Christ, to empower his tremendous ministry. And the Lord Jesus was anointed, means he was set apart. He was commissioned to bring good news to the poor. We think of Jesus preaching, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom. He came to bind up the brokenhearted. We think of all those who receive forgiveness from Christ and the the hopeless brokenness 
of their sinful condition was lifted and they were given eternal life. We think of the woman bleeding for 12 years who was healed and saved by faith. We think of the deaf man who was healed by Christ and given salvation from sin. We think of the sinful woman who was so grateful for forgiveness that she literally wept on Jesus' feet. We think of the the countless people who were forgiven of their sins by the one authorized to do so. He would also come to proclaim liberty to the captives, opening the prison of those who are bound. We think of all those in spiritual bondage to demonic power that Jesus freed and saved. We think of one man with thousands of demons whom Jesus freed and sent out as the first Gentile evangelist. Now, it's interesting that some manuscripts translate opening the prison of those who are bound as opening the eyes of the blind. It doesn't make any difference because it's the same spiritual concept And it fits with other places in Isaiah that speaks of spiritual blindness. And so we think of Jesus healing the blind as a demonstration of his power to open spiritually blind eyes, eyes blind to their own sin and hopelessness. Verse 2, Jesus came to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. That after exile, followed by 400 years of prophetic silence by God, now the king has come to personally give an invitation to the kingdom. And his message was so simple. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Meaning, I'm right here. The king is here. Turn away from your sin. Come back to faithfulness. The Lord Jesus began his domestic agenda at his first coming. And he even confirms this himself. Luke chapter 4 records that Jesus, back in his hometown of Nazareth, went to the synagogue on the Sabbath. He stood up to read from the scriptures and the the rabbi in charge handed Jesus the scroll of Isaiah. This would have been a sizable scroll and with no chapters or verses, which were added 1,200 years later. And Jesus unrolled the scroll. He kept unrolling, 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 making everybody nervous because he's getting right to the very end. And then he stops at exactly the right place. And he read, I'm reading from Luke chapter 4, verses 18 and 19. And he reads from the scroll, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Then he sat down, took a dramatic pause, and he said, Today, this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. In other words, I'm the guy speaking in Isaiah 61. The domestic agenda of the king continues to unfold. Verse 2, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor, that's where Jesus stopped reading because that's as far as his mission went the first time. And right in that comma, after the word favor, right after that comma and before the word and, you can insert the church age right now. His agenda continues and the day of vengeance of our God. When Christ returns to rid Israel of all who have hated her, he will judge all who have lived through the great tribulation before his return and mete out justice on the spot. And once Israel is cleaned up, he'll turn to his beloved people, those who have finally had their spiritual eyes opened, and he'll soothe them, he'll comfort them after thousands of years of suffering under the hand of God, Jesus will now bring his people home like a hen gathers her chicks. The end of verse 2 says, To comfort all who mourn. 
Verse 3, to grant to those who mourn in Zion. And now they'll be transformed. They'll have new hearts with which to love the Lord their God with all their heart, mind, and strength. They'll be pillars of righteousness. Verse 3, to give them a beautiful headdress instead of ashes, the oil of gladness instead of mourning, the garment of praise instead of a faint spirit, that they may be called oaks like pillars of righteousness, the planting of the Lord that he may be glorified. And now part of his domestic agenda will be to literally rebuild Israel far beyond her former glory. In verse 4, they shall build up the ancient ruins. They shall raise up the former devastations. They shall repair the ruined cities, the devastation of many generations. And all the shame, all the dishonor of the past will be wiped away. And like suffering Job, to whom God gave double all that he had lost, Christ's national agenda is to heap double blessing on Israel. Look to verse 7. Instead of your shame, there shall be a double portion. Instead of dishonor, they shall rejoice in their lot. Therefore, in their land, they shall possess a double portion. They shall have everlasting joy. By the way, just as a reminder, from Genesis 15, verse 18, the land originally allotted to Israel... The true land of Israel goes from the Nile River in Egypt to the Euphrates River. What is that? What today is considered eastern Egypt, Israel, Jordan, Lebanon, and Syria, and part of Iraq, it's all Israel by right of a decree made by God 4,000 years ago. So when Jesus promises to give Israel a double portion, he's not kidding. And how will God keep his faithful promise to Israel? He will always be just in keeping his promises. He'll never defraud them. And he says this in verse 8, For I, the Lord, love justice. I hate robbery and wrong. In other words, he's swearing by his own righteousness that I will faithfully give them their recompense and I will make an everlasting covenant with them. That's the domestic agenda, but the domestic agenda and the international agenda of the king, they're, they're very intertwined. They're very related. They're interrelated to each other. Verse 5, we start to go international now. Strangers shall stand and tend your flocks. Foreigners shall be your plowmen and vine dressers. Now, this can't be the return of exile, the return from exile in Babylon, because there's no international cooperation on Israel's behalf when they returned in the 5th century B.C. is just the opposite. In fact, the book of Nehemiah is all about the fact that the nations around them hated them and, and opposed what they were doing. But now, in the future kingdom of Christ, when he sets up, when he comes back, there's cooperation. This describes a, a thriving economy in which Gentile believers are thrilled and excited to have a part in the restoration and the joy of a newly expanded Israel. And just to be clear, this isn't somehow a second-class citizenship for the Gentiles. This is Israel as God's chosen nation being the magnet, the drawing point for the Gentiles to serve among them. And the Gentile believers will have an amazing privilege, and that is to be spiritually served in return by God's ethnic people for the Jews to faithfully proclaim the excellencies of God. Listen to verse 6. But you, Israel, shall be called the priests of the Lord. They shall speak of you as the ministers of our God. Listen, the opportunity to hear the gospel of Jesus Christ from the mouth of a Jew will be our greatest privilege, our greatest honor, our greatest joy. 
And this beautiful reciprocal international relationship of love is demonstrated in the sharing of provision and mutual love for Christ. The second half of verse 6 says, You, Israel, shall eat the wealth of the nations, and in their glory you shall boast. In other words, Israel will enjoy, and we saw this in detail last time, they'll enjoy all the wealth, all the provision being brought from the nations, and in return, Israel will boast and glory in the nations of the world. Now, just read the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and that makes this absolutely phenomenal. Because what was one of Israel's major spiritual problems that Jesus dealt with in the Gospels? That was the fact that God's original purpose for Israel, all the way going all the way back to Exodus 19, verse 6, his original purpose for Israel was to attract the nations to Yahweh. And instead, they were attracted to the gods of other nations. Just the opposite. And ultimately, instead of attracting the Gentiles to Yahweh, Israel degraded into hating Gentiles and believing that they did not deserve to come to Yahweh. But now Israel will say the nations love Christ. The nations worship Yahweh. Isn't that great? Isn't that amazing? But the admiration will go both ways. You've heard of a mutual admiration society. Israel, Gentiles, Gentiles, Israel. This is what's happening. What will the nations say of Israel? Verse 9. And their offspring shall be known among the nations and their descendants in the midst of the peoples. All who see them shall acknowledge them. It means to say, you are great and we give you honor for that. That they are an offspring the Lord has blessed. How we Gentiles will rave about God's faithfulness to Israel. It will be the story of the ages that the Israel of the Bible who continually failed, the Israel of the Bible who crucified the Lord, the Israel of the Bible who has been spiritually blinded literally for thousands of years under the discipline of the Lord, now serving God and fulfilling his purposes for her. And the praise of God and the praise of God's work in Israel will literally dominate the earth, a world filled with singing and joy and celebration of God's goodness. Verse 11 For as the earth brings forth its sprouts, and as a garden causes what is sown in it to sprout up, so the Lord God will cause righteousness and praise to sprout up before all nations. In other words, every corner you turn on earth is a worship service happening to the glory of God, both for the sake of the Gentiles and the sake of the Jews. Well, what about the king? How's he going to respond? You think Jesus is just on earth kind of yawning through this whole thing? the plan which places him on the throne of David, on the throne of the world, the plan in which Christ's domestic agenda and his international agenda is perfectly worked out and carried out. This is the joy of the king. Verse 10, I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. My soul will exult in my God, for he has clothed me with the garments of salvation. He has covered me with the robe of righteousness. As a bridegroom decks himself like a priest with a beautiful headdress, and as a bride adorns herself with jewels, This is the joy of the king. Christ is clothed in the garments of salvation with which he clothes his faithful, his righteous, in his righteousness. Now, some feel that this is Israel speaking, but who's the speaker in this chapter? It is clearly the Lord Jesus. It's clearly the Redeemer. His work of providing salvation has been completed. And verse 10 is so meaningful. It's so poignant because what did it take to get to this point? The Lord Jesus Christ was crucified naked and alone. 
on the cross by which he would pay for the sins of all who would believe in his name. And now, instead of being naked, he's clothed with the garments of robes of righteousness that he has for his people. And he's surrounded, rather than being alone, by a world of loving, worshiping subjects. Listen, don't ever forget that the very happiest and joyful person concerning the plan of God is God himself. You remember that when Christ returns to Israel, to the capital nation of the world, Zephaniah 3, verse 17, says, The Lord your God is in your midst, a mighty one who will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you by his love. He will exult over you with loud singing. Has anyone ever heard Jesus sing at the top of his lungs? You will, because nobody will be happier about this plan than him. Well, we've been talking about the king's agenda when Christ returns, and we've said that he has a domestic agenda for Israel, an international agenda for the nations. Actually, we could have saved a little time and simply said this. Are you ready for this? The king's agenda was simply to fulfill God's promises to Abraham. That's it. The domestic agenda of Christ. Let's compare it. What was the first group? A great nation. A physical land forever. Verse 7 speaks of the double portion of land, and Christ says that it will be an everlasting joy to them. And look at all the land-related ideas. Verse 4, cities are rebuilt. Verse 5, flocks and fields and vineyards. Verse 11, the earth sprouting, a garden growing. So you have a physical land forever under the first group of a great nation. You have numerous offspring Verse 9, the offspring of, Ab- of Israel, of Abraham, will be famous among the nations, and partly it will be because they're so numerous. They'll be acknowledged, they'll be honored as God's blessed ethnic nation. And these people will be made up, like us, of those who were poor in spirit, who were brokenhearted in our sin, captive to an eternity without God. Under the great nation, physical land forever, numerous offspring. We also see Israel's continued existence sustained by the Abrahamic covenant. Verse 3 says that he will grant to those who previously had no hope to now get dressed up and to celebrate. Now they're oaks, they're pillars of righteousness, something planted that will never be moved. The great nation promise also includes deliverance from bondage. No longer would Israel ever be under any nation's control, but more importantly, no longer would Israel ever be under bondage to sin again. Christ has freed the captives and opened the eyes, eyes of the blind. Well, what about the international agenda of Christ? This is the worldwide blessing of the Abrahamic covenant, the second group of blessings. Israel is a blessing to all nations. Verse 6 says that you shall be called priests of the Lord. This is exactly what Israel's original purpose was in Exodus 19, verse 6, that you will be a kingdom of what? Of priests. To make God famous in the world, to make God big in the world. We also see that the ultimate fulfillment is in the singular seed of Abraham. Verse 1, the one upon whom the Spirit of the Lord rests, a man who is God in the flesh and a king of all kings. Verse 10, the one clothed in the salvation that he provides to all the nations. We also saw the worldwide blessing includes the offspring of Abraham, now include all who are justified by faith. And the whole mood of the relationship between saved Israel and the saved nations is that of a shared heritage. 
Abraham is my father. That was the sinful boast of the Israelite leaders in the Gospels. Well, Abraham is my father. Well, the unsinful boast will be Abraham is my father. And we'll say, hey, he's my father too. And they'll say, yes, isn't it great? The king's agenda is quite simply the same as it always has been going all the way back to the Garden of Eden. Does that make sense? It never changed. In the Garden of Eden, it was God's purpose to bless mankind for the glory of God from a central nation unto the whole earth. And under the sovereign plan of God, sin was allowed to enter the world so that a savior would be needed and Abraham would be the key to the whole thing. So the king's agenda, his domestic agenda, his international agenda is to fulfill the Abrahamic promises concerning a great nation and a worldwide blessing. Now, if you're paying attention... I've left something out. What about the personal blessing to Abraham? Didn't we forget about that? The personal blessing to Abraham was that God would give him tremendous wealth, innumerable offspring. The Lord Jesus claimed that before Abraham was, I am, in John eight fifty eight, he claims the divine attribute of eternality. But you remember, and we saw this, Abraham met Jesus Christ many, many centuries before Isaiah 61. Genesis 18, when the Lord came and visited Abraham with two angels, this is a pre-birth appearance of the Lord Jesus himself. Abraham didn't know him by the name that he would receive in Bethlehem. He knew Jesus by the name that he called him, Adonai, Lord. And it was Adonai who reaffirmed these promises to Abraham at that time. And it is Abraham's Adonai, the Lord Jesus Christ, who has brought about the personal blessing of Abraham. Just like Abraham freed his captive relatives in Genesis 14, Christ has freed captive Israel. Here in verse 1, Abraham's descendants are renowned in the world. They have a name that is known, verse 9, and the wealth of the nations is being brought to Israel. And by the way, the curse on those who would dishonor Abraham Ultimately, by dishonoring the singular seed of Abraham, Jesus Christ. Verse 2, the vengeance of Christ, the judge, has come on all who hate Israel. That's why I don't like to stand next to people who are putting down Israel. I'm going to move off just a little bit. Now, you might say, but how is that a fulfillment of God's personal blessing on Abraham? Abraham's been dead for 4,000 years. Well, listen to what the king says about that. Matthew 22, verse 32, I am the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. He is not the God of the dead, but of the living. And listen to what the prophet Daniel has to say about this. Daniel chapter 12 describes the great tribulation. He calls it a time of trouble such as never has been since there was a nation till that time. And right after that, at the end of the great tribulation, what happens to the Old Testament saints who love the Lord? Daniel 12, 1 and 2 your people shall be delivered, everyone whose name shall be found written in the book, and many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake. And verse 3 says that they shall shine like the brightness of the sky above. In other words, when Christ returns to fulfill his domestic agenda and his international agendas, to fulfill all of his promise to Abraham, Abraham will be there. He will be there. You will meet him. He will walk the land saying, wow, I never imagined it could be this good. And all of us are blessed by this. 
Do you understand that the key to understanding the entire Bible is to understand the Abrahamic covenant? Because we are blessed by the covenant that all the nations will be blessed as a result of him. And so the personal blessings to Abraham, they come true to him in his life. So how do you pray for the king's agenda? Very simple answer. Pray for the ultimate fulfillment of the Abrahamic covenant. Pray that all of these things come to pass as the Lord has promised. But more importantly, my prayer for you is that you're there, that you see it. Don't miss it. Don't miss it. Our Father, we thank you for the gloriousness of your plan. It's so broad in scope, and and it reminds me, God, that I am one little dot, that I am a speck of dust. And yet, in your graciousness, 4,000 years ago, you promised a man that he would have a son, and his son would have a son, and his son would have many sons, and one of those named Judah would have many sons, and, and through his sons and sons' sons and grandsons would come one, the Lord Jesus Christ. And through him, Every family group, every clan, every people on earth could and would be blessed. That as the Holy Spirit moves to and fro throughout the earth and regenerates and creates spiritual rebirth in those whom you have chosen, that those who are from every nation on earth have the opportunity to come under the blessing of the Abrahamic covenant because we come under the blessing of the Son of Abraham, Jesus Christ. So, Lord, we would join in with the many faithful saints of the centuries past, and we would pray, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Might you bring about the full completion, the full fulfillment of the Abrahamic covenant. Might the Lord Jesus return soon, and might we see that glorious day. And, Lord, we would pray for a man or a woman who may be hearing this, who is not certain whether they know the Lord Jesus Christ. Lord, we ask for your mercy that they not miss out on this glorious plan, that they would simply repent of their sin and turn to you and ask you to make them a part of your plan. We pray these things for Christ's sake. Amen.